Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is Hillary Clinton's right-hand woman and trusted advisor for more than 20 years. Huma Aberdeen started out as an intern at the White House at the age of 20 and ended up as a key figure in American politics over a period that covered the Iraq War, 9-11, the financial crash and the election of Donald Trump. She travelled to more than 100 countries with Clinton when she was First Lady, Secretary of State and then presidential candidate, flying from war zones to the shrinking Arctic Circle, visiting refugee camps and sleeping in Buckingham Palace. But she had to juggle her high-powered career with heartbreak when her husband, the former congressman, Anthony Weiner, was caught sending indecent images to other women and eventually sent to jail for sexting a teenager. And her childhood in Saudi Arabia was overshadowed by her father's long illness and death. But now she's written a memoir telling her own extraordinary story for the first time. The truth was hard, almost unbearable, she says. But the road to healing felt much better than the road to nowhere. Aberdeen, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. We wanted to know, why did you decide to write a book? Was it a way of taking back control of your own life, in a way reclaiming your narrative, because you've been defined through other people for so much of your life? Well, first of all, Rachel and Alice, I'm so happy to be on your show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And the answer to your question, Rachel, is absolutely. I think, um, as you described, I have been known in public service, you know, publicly in this country uh, for the last two decades. And I did feel as though people were telling my story for me. And I'm a behind the scenes invisible person. I prefer that, to be honest. But it felt as though other people were beginning to write my history. And I wanted to share my truth. I wanted to also speak to other women and Muslims and brown girls out there and you know, I do think um, I was, I had an, ex, I have an extraordinarily privileged life and I was happy to share the story. And it was great therapy mm. to write the story as well. And your memoir is called Both and A Life in Many Worlds. How did you end up calling it that? Well, we went through many different iterations for this title. And, um, and this was the first one that felt right. And in part, because I do feel um, that we increasingly live in a either or world. And for me, it has always been both. And I am the child of two immigrant parents, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother, they left their homelands in pursuit of education for them. Education was a religion. And they came to this country as Fulbright scholars, they met, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And when I was two, my father um, was diagnosed with, you know, a renal failure and told he had five to 10 years and he should get his affairs in order. 
And I write one of my first lines that I sat down when I wrote this book was my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and lived and we moved to Saudi Arabia for one year for a sabbatical and that turned into a much longer period of time. But my parents' entire approach to the world was the both and it was understanding our own culture, our own faith, our own, um, you know, social norms, but also exploring the world, traveling to other places and cultures and faiths to understand to be comfortable in different places. And as an adult, I can look back and say, I am both and I can be an American Muslim and also a patriot. I can be both Indian and Pakistani. Um, so it's about balance. My father and mother really told us the balance and moderation were in discipline were in important things to build character and they certainly imparted that to us. But I think it also encapsulates that tension that all working mothers feel perhaps. And yes. do you think we'll ever get yes. to that point where men feel as torn between work and family as women do? I don't know that we will see it in my, our lifetime. Um, I wish I wish we would. I had the unusual, what I believe was an unusual circumstance in that when I was married, my partner had been very much an equal partner in all things that related to our household and found that in conversations with my girlfriends, they were baffled. I mean, you know, they were not used to coming home and having all the laundry done and hot food on the table and, you know, my child's doctor's appointments and school, you know, obligations sorted and organized for them. Um, he was very much an equal partner in many ways in our marriage. In others, it was a complete disaster. Um, but it is hard. And I did feel, I mean, gosh, um, Rachel, I'm so glad you asked, uh, asked it from that perspective because yes, both and also means I can be a mother and a good mother mm. and also be a professional and it, but it's hard. I mean, you're torn. I, for much of my professional life, I wasn't sure I was doing either very well, but I certainly tried. Mm. We want to take you back to your childhood now. You were born in Michigan, you say, but you went to live in Jeddah. Um, what was it like being brought up as a child in Saudi Arabia? Well, Alice, you know, for me, it was what I knew. You know, I opened the book. First, I opened the book with saying, you know, I grew up surrounded by stories and I loved storytelling. And it's one of the reasons I'm happy to share mine. But, you know, I this first scene is in Balads in the old city and getting lost, actually. And not, you know, getting lost in a sea of black because all the women were covered in black and all the men were wearing white. But um, because I had the balance of the two worlds, like when I was in Saudi, that's what was normal. And then we would get on a plane and we would travel all over the world. We spent every summer in the UK and in Canada and then, you know, everywhere in between and obviously ended up in America. But it was a different life. It was what I loved about it was this sense of community, the sense of belonging to something, the sense of never being alone. In my part of the world, we call it the Ummah, which is the Muslim community. And um, I really, I really flourished in that environment. And I certainly sought that kind of environment when I moved to this country as an adult. So I remember going to Saudi Arabia with Tony Blair when he was prime minister. And as we landed and we got off the plane and we covered our heads as we'd been instructed, Sheri Blair looked across at me and the one other female reporter was there and she grimaced. Did you feel that sense of discrimination against women when you were growing up, that girls were treated differently to boys and that you had to cover up the whole time? Did it feel oppressive or was it just what you were used to? It felt, um, you felt the restrictions. You know, it is why to me, and I write the scene in this in the book, which I actually haven't had an opportunity to talk about 
But when I was a little girl and my, my parents would send me to a Syrian uh, family's house, so they were actually Syrian Americans house in Jeddah. And I was eight or nine. And, um, and it was a woman who gets mistakenly, you know, a man sees her and she shuts the door in the middle of our lesson. And she's so shaken by the experience. She takes off her slippers and starts hitting her head because she's so upset that a man saw her unveiled. And only later I learned, I saw pictures of her. She was a family friend and I saw pictures of her, my parents' wedding in Philadelphia and she's in a mini skirt and she's got a beehive. I mean, it's sort of the, my gosh, talk about the dichotomy. I mean, to me, to me, it's about having the choice. You know, I have women in my family who wear mini skirts. I have women in my family who cover their hair. Hmm. It is making that conscious decision. And so, you know, the, um, you know, for my parents, our house, we were told we could be whatever we wanted to be. We could do whatever we wanted. All they required was that we be educated and why my mother in particular, I really want to honor her. I end the book on the women in my family, because in back when my grandmother wanted to go to school in India, women didn't go to school. She had to fight to go to school. And I write the story of her jumping on an ox cart from the back of the house because it would be shameful for a girl to be seen, you know, uh, leaving the house every day to be educated. And then she passed that on to my mother who then went on to, you know, get the first PhD of any woman in our family. They fought for that right, for that education, for that freedom. And so to me, one of the things that propels me forward constantly is that I'm trying to honor that legacy I'm not sure it would have been so easy to live in Saudi Arabia if I didn't know that the freedoms I could enjoy were only a flight away. We were away so much. We Mm. had the balance of both worlds. And so I could get out and, you know, I did get out so I could keep the sort of, you know, purity of my childhood. Yes. Mm. I could keep the purity of my childhood and my family and that really wonderful, rich life we had. But I know that was not the case for a lot of women there. And a lot of, um, you know, women still struggle with those restrictions. And you talk about how your father had to meet you from school because your mother wasn't allowed to drive. <laughs> there must have been moments when you felt frustrated. Did you ever try and rebel when you were out there? Or did you okay, feel that so you had a sort of secret did, life? I did. I will tell you that this book was much longer and it many parts of it had to be cut, but particularly my early life. And... Um, there, you know, we rebelled in the only ways we knew how, you know, I tell the story of going to smoke on the roof of our house because smoking felt like the right rebellious thing to do when you were, I must've been 14, maybe even younger. And I remember a neighbor called my father complaining that he had seen an uncovered woman oh. on the roof of our house. So is that, was rather like, that, than the smoking. that was the true transgression. And I remember I go down to my, op- my dad's office and he turns around and he has he smoked camel um, cigarettes, unfiltered camel cigarettes back then. And he turns around and he tosses the pack and a lighter towards me. And he said, if you're going to do this, you're going to do this with me. And the funny thing is it had the exact opposite. The whole point of smoking was doing something bad, was rebelling. I, you know, all of a sudden lost its, you know, <laughs> its, its appeal doing it with my father. And he must have known that. And your father sounds like an extraordinary figure. He was incredibly optimistic about the future. You say that he always used to say that the reason our eyes are in the front of our heads is to look ahead, not backward. But he did also have this terminal illness. Did you realise when you were growing up that he was so sick or did your parents keep it from you? 
they kept they really they kept it from us and i think you know they wanted us to have carefree childhood childhoods um they wanted us to have all these adventures together you know my parents really did keep it from us they wanted us to have a carefree childhood and i did not know i recount a story in the book when i was a little girl and playing dress up in my mom's closet and my father walks in after a long brutal dialysis session and that's what happens when your kidneys have failed you have to have dialysis and it's a very intense that basically your blood is recirculated in your system and i remember running up to my father trying to not get in trouble for the mess i'd made in their room and said what did the doctor say and he said my doctor said my daughters are very beautiful and <laughs> they really tried you know, I think all these games he played with us, number one, it was for him, you know, to find ways to spend time with us. But I also think he was teaching us how to live without him. So to be an eight-year-old, to call up the airlines and book a flight from Jakarta to Bangkok, which I think a lot of eight-year-olds weren't doing back then and maybe even now, I think he wanted us to be independent. He wanted us, we, you know, from my earliest memories, we were working in his office. Um they wanted us to be optimistic about the world. They wanted us to be curious about the world, exactly what you said about history. You know, my father was a man who was thrown from his horse at 21. He's a member of the equestrian club and he broke his back and he walked on that back for seven days. It was only oh after goodness. his friends took him to the doctor. So when people say, I don't know where you get this strength of will, I think this is my father. Right. This is the man who raised me. Yeah. Um, and and I think that he really left, you know, this book is in the end a love letter to my father. It's if I could talk to him today and say, this is what I did. This is what I did with my life. And I hope you're proud of me. And he died when you were 17. It must have had the most extraordinary impact on you because it's such a vulnerable age. What was it like in that year? You know, he died when I needed him most. And, you know, Muslims, we don't believe that people are taken before our time. What we're taught is that everyone has their time. It is written. There's nothing you can do. And so really, I actually believe it was a gift. My father's kidneys did fail 10 years to the day the doctor had predicted. And by then, thanks to my mother, um, I always say my father put on this really, you know, very tough front of being okay all the time, but it was my mother who aided and abetted the illusion. She fought to get him a kidney. He managed to get a kidney transplant and we got seven extra years with him. Those were years I really got to know him. I traveled with him as an assistant to his conferences. We were in the UK much of the time and in Canada and other places in Greece and Turkey. And I, um, I, I got to know who he was and uh, you know, even telling the stories of those final days in the hospital. Um, it was, you know, he was prescient about so much about what was going to happen to the Muslim community back then. He said, we had to understand how to live in this world and everything he predicted from the situation of the Bosnian Muslims to, you know, the Uyghurs in China, the Rohingyas, and, you know, uh, then now Myanmar, the young Muslim men in the UK and in France, the struggles that they would have. He was writing about 40, 30, 40 years ago. And so I really felt like he was doing some important things before we lost him. And boy, I was in such trauma when he died. I couldn't even say he was dead for the first two years after I'd lost him. I wandered around university um, talking about my parents in their present tense. It was very, very difficult. Really? And you went to college in America. Did you worry about that or did you feel that you had to... Um, stay and protect your mother and look after her? 
I was like any teenager. I was so sure and confident in myself that right after my father died, I said to my mom, I'm not going to university. I'll take another year off. I wanted to help her with my father's foundation and his journal. And she, um, she knew, she said, no, you need to decide it's your choice in the end. That's how my parents raised us. In the end, it was our choice. They led, you know, taught by example, but um, she knew it was important for me to go to university, um, even though, you know, as I said, the road was littered with impediments of my grief. Um, but she really pushed me to go. We landed in Washington, D.C. And the minute I stopped on, stepped onto the George Washington University campus in the middle of the world, it felt like the center of the universe. I knew it was the right place for me. Mm. Was it because it felt like going home or did you feel like you were an outsider or did you in the, in the way that you're so optimistic. Did you feel that actually encapsulated the best of you in both ways? It felt like the center of the world. It felt, it felt when we drove to it, you know, we're passing by the State Department, the White House is down the street, the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorial, sort of all of American history and government and possibility. Although back then I wanted to be a journalist, not only a journalist, I wanted to be Christiane Amanpour. That was my dream. <laughs> Um, and I did an interview with her the other day, but of course I didn't have the courage to tell her, (laughs) but, but I did, you know, I had a sense of, you know, a real determination that I was going to be something and do something big with my life. Uh, and it just felt right. Maybe the, the weather, it was also really hot and humid. It it was August in Washington. So maybe that reminded me of, of Saudi Arabia, but it just it was a feeling more than anything else. But was it also an enormous culture shock, all the parties and the drinking? You come from this very protected yeah. uh, culture. Was it incredibly different? It was. And also, um, it was this, you know, one of the last conversations I had with my father was, you know, he didn't doubt that I was going to do okay in university in the U.S. or the U.K. And both my, my older siblings did choose the U.K. Um, over the United States. I picked the United States and um, he said that the culture shock was going to be so extreme, it would be like a revolution. And he was right. And that's why he said every decision I needed to make needed to be informed by my values, that no freedom was absolute. And he, you know, I think having that grounding, because you're right, showing up, originally I was uh, I was assigned to the co-educational dormitory and you can imagine my mother a Pakistani <laughs> woman wandering around saying you are not sleeping on the same floor as boys <laughs> moved me promptly moved me to the one you know all women's dormitory but the cultural shock was actually quite um was quite extreme and you got a job as an intern in the White House when you were just 20 Is that when you fell in love with politics or was it really your father that didn't give you that obsession you know it really was it was i say fate luck you know a friend of mine ronith who i met through the black student union came to me one day and after you know some i can't remember exactly where and she said listen i i know you want to be christian i'm on board <laughs> and i i have this wonderful internship i work for mike mccurry in the press office at the white house let me get you an application it would be a great opportunity i never thought i would get the job ever I filled out the application, went home to Saudi Arabia, and sure enough, uh, you know, returned to the U.S. with this large packet. And I walked into the White House, and this story was cut from the book, but I was actually quite disappointed to learn that I was not assigned to the press office, because how was I going to be Christian if I wasn't actually <laughs> in the press office? 
And you talk about these incredibly strong American women like Christian Amanpour, the TV presenter, and Hillary. And yet it felt very clear that America wasn't going to vote for a woman more than anything else, were they? And those sort of placards that they held up saying, on my shirt. How did that make you feel? It must have been unbelievably frustrating when she was running for president. Well, I, you know, I write about two, three campaigns rather in 2000 when Hillary was running for the Senate when she was first lady, that first moment during a debate where the then, you know, Republican congressman who was running against her at a debate wanders over to her, shaking a piece of paper in her hand, in his hand, in the air, demanding that she sign it, you know, and in that moment, we thought, oh my goodness, this is really bad. He looks so strong and she looks so weak. Like even we didn't know Mm. how to deal with it or handle it. And in 2008, I write in detail and 2016, how little has changed that, you know, both men and women, the way we judge women in public service. And in part, one of the reasons I think it was so hard for Hillary in 2008 is that she was the first. There was no standard, there was no precedent. And even in in 2016, I would ask people when they would say who she should, you know, she should talk like this, she should look like this, she should dress like that. First of all, nobody agreed. Mm. Everyone had a different opinion. How people would say longer jackets, shorter jackets, put her in T-shirts. She should wear glasses. <laughs> she, she looks really tired. Does she have her makeup artist? Like all the hours she would spend getting ready and you couldn't please everybody. And then the you know, I recount the story of a male media consultant who gave me advice, uh, the advice of you should put a picture of her grandchild on the podium when she speaks so that when she looks down, she looks at something that <laughs> makes her happy and then she will be happy. And you'd think how many men are ever given this kind of advice? Yeah. And whenever I would ask people, well, who's the model? There was no model. Because at least in Hillary Clinton's case, no woman um, had done this before. And you know, she made history in this country for the women and girls um, in 2008 when she won that New Hampshire primary against President Obama and then went on to win many, many more primaries and caucuses in this country. But it was very hard. I mean, you just have to look at 2020 and see what a tremendous feat she actually achieved because no one's managed to do after her um, what she had done in those two elections. Mm. You know, I think actually a decade ago when she was running in 2008, I'm not sure we as a society knew how to deal with the sexist comments and remarks. So we would giggle. She would laugh it off. Even the scene that I recount the scene in the book about in 2008 when she teared up at an event, even as she's telling the story, she sort of laughs off. I have to spend so much time getting my hair and makeup done. Um, We didn't know how to deal with it, everyone. And no one, men would say these horrible things about her on TV. You know, reporters, journalists, you know, just, you know, when she comes on TV, I want to cross my legs. I mean, it's, and we'd laugh. All of us would laugh because we didn't know how to deal with it. And in 2016, it was not dissimilar in that you just assumed this was the price you had to pay to be in the game. This is what you had to do to succeed. And, you know, I try to look at all the silver linings post-2016. And I, you know, one of the foremost moments is the is the women's movement, is the Me Too movement, is women stepping up and saying, you know what? No, not anymore. I am standing up, speaking up for what I believe in. It is not okay to be treated the way that women have been treated for decades in this country, and I would argue around the world. And that's an important reckoning. 
Have you personally experienced more misogyny or Islamophobia, do you think? For me, because it was so personal, the hardest moment was in 2012 when five Republican Congress members of Congress accused me of having extremist ties and more than me, my family, my parents, my father, who was not even alive to defend himself, just the fake news that, you know, put this dark cloud um, on our head. And it wasn't just me, it was other, you know, Muslims in government that had to endure this, but it was just shocking and unacceptable. And I was really thrilled when, uh, not thrilled, that's not the right word. I was just speechless when Senator McCain uh, went to the floor of the Senate to defend me and my family and then President Obama, but they weren't just defending me or my family. It was, they were standing up for the principles and values that this country was founded upon. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, Huma Aberdeen. We'll be back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Hillary Clinton's aide, Huma Aberdeen. Then you met this charming, charismatic congressman called Anthony Weiner. You were used to brushing off all these political admirers to focus on your work. But how did he manage to get you to go on a date? How did he actually get your attention? Well, you know, Anthony, from the minute we met in 2001, in August of 2001, on Martha's Vineyard, it was, you know, something from the minute I saw him, he had this confidence, this sort of way of talking about the world. He was smart and charismatic, and he was in public service. You know, he was, Hillary was in the Senate. Um, he was on the House side. So they were colleagues on the same, you know, the New York delegation. And we really became friends before anything else. Um, and I, I, I admired how he, you know, he always seemed to be fighting for what he believed was right. And for a long period of time, it was the healthcare debate in our country. And so I kind of fell in love with him by accident. You know, we were friends before we were anything else. And um, and he was the first man. I mean, I was always so focused on work. I didn't really make time uh, for a personal life. Um, 
And I didn't get asked out very much either. <laughs> so it's not like I was fending off all these admirers. There weren't that many admirers around. <laughs> but he gave up alcohol and pork and he fasted during Ramadan with you even. But yeah. did it worry you that he wasn't a Muslim? He's an oh, American Jew. Oh, we, it was a, 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 a a point of uh, great uh, deliberation and um, and prayer for me. It was very difficult to, you know, it was very difficult to get to that next step uh, in our relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, um, Rachel, I think it was one of the reasons why I accidentally fell in love with him because I thought I'm never going to end up with him. Mm. We're, we're such good friends. I enjoy being with him. And, you know, I write about at the end of the 2008 campaign, I tried to not see him and I found that I was actually quite miserable without him in my life. Um, but it took a lot of, you know, faith and um, and really reflection um, to come to that, you know, place where we could, you know, be married. And a big part of it was his willingness to accept so much of our way of life and, you know, so much of our faith values. And and that's really that meant a lot to me, actually. It really it really meant a lot to me mm. that we we shared so much together. And Bill Clinton officiated at your wedding, telling guests that every wedding is a wonder. This one is a miracle. What do you think he meant by that? And how did you feel on your wedding day? Was it the most perfect day of your life? It was a dream. Even when I look back now, I have gratitude for having that moment. You know, when I lived not, people are always surprised that I uh, thank Anthony at the end of the book. I acknowledge him because he gave me a gift and that gift is I know what it is like to feel loved, to feel special. And um, and that day was just magical. It was all the people I loved, the moments that I loved. And um, when I called the president, you know, this was Hillary Clinton's idea that the president marry us. He said, I couldn't manage peace in the Middle East, but the fact that I could, you know, Anthony and I were so opposite in so many ways. So <laughs> just the two of us being in the same space and place, I think surprised many people. Um, but I only have the most, you know, wonderful memories from that day and that, that moment in time of my life. I'm grateful for it. But it was only 10 months when you were pregnant already with your son, Jordan. You were staying at Buckingham Palace. Um, then things started to go wrong, didn't they? You wrote to Anthony from Buckingham Palace on the headed paper saying, is it possible for any two people to be happier or more blessed? Did, did you have any doubts at all about him at that point? No. I was living not just an amazing life. I was living what I would have told you then was a perfect life. And and we woke up, we both, you know, I felt like I had met the perfect life partner. And every day I carried, as you said, I woke up in Buckingham Palace carrying this secret that I was not even, you know, 12 weeks pregnant with my son, my child. Um, and um, just with gratitude, why we're so lucky to mm. be so, so blessed. And- uh, I would have never have imagined what the next four days would have brought. Um, those next four days, Anthony texted to say that his Twitter account had been hacked and somebody had posted a photo. That wasn't actually true. It turned out he'd sent and then deleted an indecent picture of himself. How did you feel when you found out? And what did you think at the beginning? Did you feel that he'd been in some way sort of that, that, that he, you know, he was in the right and that they were in the wrong, everyone who was trying to hound him? Well, I did at the beginning, you know, I knew, uh, as I, we were just discussing, you know, I, part of the reflection 
that I undertook before I agreed to marry Anthony was knowing that I was about to be married to a public person. And I did that with some trepidation. I liked being private. I liked having my own life. And from the day we, you know, met or spent time together, dating, married, you know, I couldn't back then taking people back to then, you know, I couldn't walk down the street in New York with Anthony without somebody stopping him, an admirer or somebody saying, you know, thanking him for fighting for them. Um, So I knew he was this kind of bombastic, loud, had opinions and had many admirers and had this sort of these online, um, you know, uh, debates, if you will. I was aware of all that. So when he told me he'd been hacked and I'd known about people attacking him on social media, remember social media was a brand new portal back then. Mm. It was a year, you know, Facebook and Twitter had only existed for about a year. And so these were just new inventions, new spaces and places. He didn't have, you know, he had access to people and people had access to him in a way that, you know, wasn't actually digitally possible before. When you found out the truth, though, did he have any explanation for what he'd done? You know, the moment he told me it it was him and it was true, I think I described it as a bolt of lightning, you Mm. know, just struck me from the top of my head. I was in such shock and trauma immediately. Like, I just didn't understand. You know, I I walk, you know, he gets on the phone with his advisors to come clean and start arranging a press conference to tell the, you know, the world the truth. And I go outside and stare at a pond in the back of the house and just think, what is happening to my life? Like I didn't, it was unraveling before me. I couldn't understand it for somebody for so much of her life had maintained so much control Mm. over myself. I, you know, controlled my job. I was very good at my job. Then to have something that felt so, where I felt so helpless and angry, um, it was a, it was the beginning of what I didn't know then, a very, very long journey, a very long journey mm. in trauma mm. and shame and shock and anger and bitterness, all those things. It must have been so much worse though because you were about to start a family together. Did you feel more angry in some ways for your unborn child than for yourself? Because it wouldn't just be your baggage, it would be theirs. Actually, when the news leaked that I was pregnant, I had more rage over, I immediately was protective of this life I was growing inside of me. And when I, um, when we went to Texas for therapy, um, as I document in the book, you know, the, 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 the feeling of people's eyes, the, the, the mean comments, you know, I immediately became protective of my child, my, my new family. And so for a while, for a long period of time, it really felt like Anthony and I were in a bunker together. It's not that we didn't have friends and family who were enormously, enormously supportive. Nobody really knew what to do, right? Aside from saying we're here, we had to navigate the situation on our own, try to find professional help. But, you know, he wasn't that much more enlightened about what was wrong with him. Uh, I didn't understand it. I thought this was behavior he could just knock off. Mm. And um, and more than anything, because I'd lost my father when I was young, because I did not have a choice when I lost my own father, I wanted to give this baby an opportunity to grow up in a house with, you know, two parents. So is that why you didn't leave him in the end, for, for Jordan's sake, partly? Well, in the you know, that first time in party. And also I loved him. Mm. I I didn't think this was this big, you know, sex scandals were normal. I feel 
strange saying that, but it's not like people had not heard of, you know, sex scandals in, in, in politics. And this was a whole different thing. This was entirely online. It was, you know, we were going into these rooms with therapists and it was a whole new world of other couples struggling with digital, you know, it, it redefined what cheating was. Is it, you know, infidelity? Is it not? I mean, mm. it, was, it was just a different time. And I think now people look at our relationship from a 2021 perspective of this happens, then this happens, then this happened. But back then, we were just trying to get through the day. We were just trying to figure out the next, you know, I was trying to figure out the next right thing to do. And in 2011, with a brand new baby and as a newlywed, I also, you know, was still very much in love with my husband and didn't recognize, I didn't know this person. You know, he would say it felt like a game. He tuned in, played with avatars as I write in the book, and then he tuned back out, came into rea- back to reality. You were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, weren't you? How, how did that manifest itself? It sounds like you had horrible nightmares and I, really I, tough time. I did. I had terrible nightmares. I thought I was, you know, it was everything from people, women coming to take my baby to losing my baby to showing up. You know, it, it, now, you know, um, uh, Rachel, I realize no one's actually asked me this, but you know, looking, you know, doing my own armchair expert from now, I think so much of it was this, you know, this protective motherhood mm-hmm. gene that immediately comes to being. I was really scared of losing my child or, or, and, and, and secondly, this self, the sense of privacy, I, I felt, you know, people were always watching or listening. I didn't know who I could trust when I would read in the newspaper things I supposedly told friends at lunch. So I'd lost all sense of security um, and privacy. And I, it, it took me a long time to get out of that hole. Mm. And then when Weena ran for mayor of New York, you stood by his side at a press conference telling voters, I love him, I've forgiven him, I believe in him. Why did you do that? Do you think it was partly having lost your father so young that you wanted to enable his son to feel proud of him? Or did you feel that that was your duty in some way to try and keep the family together still? Well, I didn't understand. um, I didn't understand that the behaviour really was actually getting worse, not that it was something somebody could just, you know, turn off. I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand compulsive behavior. And he certainly hadn't been, you know, diagnosed with any of that. It was in that, in that time, in that time. So for me, you know, going into uh, um, whichever conversations I was having with people, there was a lot of support for him to run. Um, I was looking at it as a way, you know, plenty of people I had learned were going through similar um, uh, situations as Anthony and I, and they had to get back into the world and participate uh, professionally. And for me, it, I looked at it from the perspective of public service is what he was, you know, good at. And um, I didn't at the time, now in hindsight, that was a mistake, but at the time I didn't think it precluded him from running for office that, you know, he could just stop doing whatever it is he was doing and he'd be fine. I didn't understand I did not understand. The reason I stood at that press conference is because I had encouraged him to run. And um, so when everything fell apart, I felt as though um, I needed to stand there and explain uh, and take responsibility for participating in that decision. I, the end of that campaign, you know, when we walked out of the, those campaign headquarters, we were not the same people who got on. Something was irretrievably broken in mm-hmm. our marriage. 
And do you think you were at all influenced by Hillary Clinton's decision to stand by Bill? Because the parallels are interesting and I wondered what advice she'd given to you and and what you'd learned from her in, in that period. You know, I, I know others like to make these comparisons, but I think for me, you know, every situation is different. Mm. With me, the way she handled it is uh, in every instance when I've had a personal trial, she has been a friend first and a boss um, second. You know, I the only advice that she'd always given me is, you know, I'm here to support you. Whatever you choose, I'm here. And she has been. And the most horrific moment must have come when there was a photograph published in a newspaper showing an indecent image of Anthony lying next to a sleeping toddler son. How did you cope with that? It just sounds horrendous. Well, you know, that um, story broke in the closing days of the 2016 presidential election. It was um, August before the November election. And to me, in that moment, I was part of a mission, and the mission was to get Hillary Clinton elected president. The alternative was terrifying. And so what got me out of bed every day was that mission. And of course, um, you know, that experience was so utterly shocking. So, you know, as I said, you know, I felt like my insides were just coming apart. It was just, you know, there was... uh, (laughs) There was shame one brings, then there's violence, and this was violence. And um, I had to deal very quickly, shift to deal with the reality of a child services investigation and trying to navigate that that space. And also, uh, as we spoke earlier, just sort of the challenge of doing it, you know, doing your job and being a mother and essentially having coming home to a letter that starts with, you know, what kind of mother. Um, that was very, uh, that was very difficult, very difficult. And incredibly, things got even worse when it was alleged that Weena had been sexting a 15-year-old girl, a, a federal offence. How did you feel when you heard that news? Was it just overwhelming by then? Well, by then, you know, when, when the, you know, the FBI director reopened the investigation, I couldn't even feel anymore. It felt selfish to feel anything. It was so beyond, uh, you know, you couldn't write this. It was so insane, um, the reality of my life. And so it was just getting through every day. And it was really hard. But there's also this terrible feeling of the worlds colliding with the, um, when the FBI seized Anthony's laptop, they found emails from you to Hillary uh, as well. And that, do you think that did have an effect on the, on the election, which then ended up with Donald Trump getting into the White House. And just that sense of the two worlds colliding must have been really hard. I do and did. And um, in in an election that close, every little thing mattered. And this Mm. was a big thing in the closing days. And it was, you know, even till today, I just, you know, this, the shock, the surprise, the, you know, it was an unprecedented announcement. There were other investigations going on there. You know, why, you know, bring such an earthquake, um, especially since it was an investigation I had cooperated in when I had first heard about it the year before. I read in, I read in the newspaper that somebody had asked me to look through my materials to see if I had any emails. No one had contacted me. And so I, I, I am that person. I wandered down to the 
you know, my office and called a lawyer friend and saying, what can I provide? How can I be helpful? I would have done anything, they asked, mm -hmm. anything. Um, so it was even harder than to bear this, this news publicly. And it obviously, it, it shifted the, in the course of uh, the election and uh, she lost. And you talk in the book about your own sense of shame. You actually haven't done anything wrong. Why did you feel that, do you think? Was it because people blamed you or shunned you? Or how did you feel that you were to blame? I think when people uh, are going through what I went through, there is some level of shame that comes with it. Women, I, I think, feel judged for the decisions we make judged for staying, judged for going, mm. judged for doing nothing, judged for doing something. And, um, you know, to be shunned, uh, you know, I write about volunteering at a food bank. Uh, and after a few times showing up, being asked not to return. Uh, the people on the street, uh, yes, the friends who no longer wanted to have anything to do with us. The sense of insecurity um, that that brings on how your struck yourself, you know, your sense of self and self confidence gets shaken uh, to its core, and that really stayed with me. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book is I no longer I'm taking the power away from the trauma. From I'm not living in shame. I have done that. So even when the woman at the pool says shame on you for allowing your you know your uh, uh, father's uh, um, your you're sorry your child's father to be with him when he's leaving for prison in a few months. I am not allowing that, you know, not shame is what we teach our children. It's not something born of their authentic experiences. And it is why I, I'm, I carry myself with such a sense of certainty that I don't want history repeating itself. So much trauma that people go through is a result of what they experience when they're young mm. and it manifests itself in different ways. And so for me, my job, my biggest job is to raise my son in a way that he feels loved and supported and any feeling is okay and his parents will always be a source of truth for him. And Jordan is now nine. How can earth can you explain any of this to him? Is that I'm wondering whether that's one reason why you've written the book, because it must be so terrifying to think of him finding everything out online. You know, I hope that when my son is old enough to read this book, that he's going to look back and say, I'm really proud of what my mom tried to do. And I'm mm. proud that my mommy tried to help my daddy. Mm. And his father, by the way, did do a couple of good things in his life uh, is in public service. Um, we have chosen, as I said, to be sources of truth. We live in a time and space where there's no 24-hour news. It's 24-second news. Uh, he has access to all kinds of things I did not have access to when I was nine. And so thankfully, we are going to use professional help. We have consulted with therapists on how, uh, in an age-appropriate way, to share with him um, the truth. Um, and we hope with that support, the unconditional love of each of his parents and his family and his friends, he's going to be okay. And he's visited his father in jail. That been very difficult for you? Um, or has Jordan found it's helped him? You know, I, it's why I close that chapter with the line, shame is something we teach our children, not something born of their authentic experiences. I, when Anthony was sent away and, you know, he had been the primary uh, caretaker in Jordan's early years in life, it was very hard on Jordan. I write a story about going away to Hawaii 
with the Clintons being surrounded by luxury, going off on these boat trips and golfing and, you know, him being triggered by a scene of another little boy being carried by his father and just completely breaking down. And that was my aha moment. Here I was the mother saying, I will not allow my son to visit prison. It's going to be too traumatic. And I realized the separation from one of the most important people of his life was actually traumatic. And he did go to prison and visit his father. And he was beaming when he walked out, just having that moment. He displayed the photo proudly in his room. And um, my son has nothing to be ashamed of. No, you know, I want him to walk with pride. And thankfully, his father has returned and is uh, is in his life and uh and as we just discussed he's going to have to learn some hard truths but we're going to be there to support him mm. and have you forgiven anthony now or or do you feel sorry for him almost oh rachel i lived in anger and bitterness and why 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 for so much of my life it almost killed me i can't do it anymore and so I chose the hard way, which is I did choose to, you know, go down this path of what's called a disclosure process, which some people do. We did it on, in the care of professional therapists so that I could learn the truth, the whole truth, process it together prof- with professionals and move on. And it's work. You know, he has to continue working on himself and he's still in therapy and continues to go. Um and uh, I just, I, for myself to be healthy and happy and to approach the world in a way that I feel like I'm now able to, um, I can't hold on to that anger. I just can't. It's gone. I've dealt with it. And looking back at yourself at 17 when your father died, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? to have find more balance in life. It's, you know, my father said a good life is a balanced life. I did not know balance for a long time. It was forced upon me when my professional life imploded and, you know, it's good. I needed the time to heal. I always picked work. And I think yeah, having a more calibrated approach to my professional life is the right, um, you know, is the right, uh, is the right way to live in this world. Humar Abedin, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you both. Take care. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Huma Aberdeen. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. 
Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information.